Hi, everyone. My name is Julene, and we're reading 2 Samuel, chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, daughter of Talmai, king of Gesher. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggath. The fifth, Shepatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithriam, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Ayah, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said, and he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day, I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David. Yet now you accuse me of an offence involving this woman. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Ish-bosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messages on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me, and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you. But I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Mishael, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife, Mishael, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go back home. So he went back. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, For some time you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord promised David, By my servant David I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to the Benjamites in person. Then he went to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin wanted to do. When Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king, so that they may make a compact with you, and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Wonderful. Thank you, Jolene. Morning again, everyone. Um, please do keep your Bibles open at uh, that passage. I'll lead us briefly in prayer, then we'll get stuck into it together.
Let's pray. Thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us in your word and in the power of your spirit at work within and among us. Please, Father, help us to concentrate and set aside any hindrances or distractions that we would rejoice and tremble at your word. And on account of that, become more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Friends, um, one of my pet hates, of which sadly there are many, is when people, either preachers or authors, whatever the case, misuse the Bible by putting the reader into the shoes of one of the main characters as if that's the reason that the text was provided. The example par excellence is, of course, David and Goliath. So the preacher or the book says something like, what is the big problem, the giant stressor, the the blockage in your life? What is the Goliath in your life? Whatever it is, if you, like David, have great faith in God and run towards that battle line, then you will overcome whatever that obstacle or that problem is. I've got news for you, you are not David, that is not the reason why the, the story of David and Goliath is written can't stand it when people do it. The other one that I hear all the time is, uh, you know, when Jesus says uh, to Peter, come to me on the water, when Jesus is walking on the water, and uh, Peter starts walking, but he sees the waves and the storm, and therefore he starts to sink, and, and the preacher or the author says something like, what are the storms in your life? The things that distract you from Jesus, because basically you're Peter and you've just got to have more faith. No, that is not the reason that part of the Bible is written. Now, why am I telling you of this particular pet hate of mine this morning. Well, because you're probably going to enjoy the fact that I'm about to shoot myself in the foot a little bit mildly. Uh, Because as followers of Jesus, I'm actually convinced that it is helpful for us to see that there is a little bit of Abner in all of us. There's a little bit of Abner in all of us as followers of Jesus. Now, why do I make that claim? And if I'm right, what should we do about it? Is it a good or a bad thing? Of course, the answer to that is yes. But what do we do about it? Well, keep that question in mind as we come to this next instalment in our series in 2 Samuel. We're at the stage of Israel's history where David, the king chosen according to God's own heart, is inevitably coming to power in Israel. He's inevitably coming to power because God has said that's what's going to happen. And we get this summary statement in the opening verse of chapter 3, which says, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. That's the summary. That's this big period of history, a long time. So what are the specifics? How exactly did the house of David grow stronger and stronger and the house of Saul get weaker? Well, the first and easy answer is that David increased his family, his dynasty, if you like. Uh, At this point, hopefully you remember, Saul is dead and so were his sons who would have been considered eligible successors. But Saul's youngest son, I'm assuming it's his youngest son, because whenever you get the list of genealogies, Ishbosheth is at the bottom. His youngest son has survived the Battle of Gilboa, possibly because he wasn't there. He might have been too young at that point to, to be in the army. And Abner, 
the commander of Saul's army, had made Ishbosheth the king over Israel as a rival to David. Uh, and David, so far, is actually only recognized as king in Judah. That's one tribe uh, out of the 12. But as you can also see from this, Saul's family is obviously quite depleted, whereas David's family happens to be greatly increasing. The next verse, sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithream, son of David's wife, Eglah. Six sons in one sort of area. Uh, these were born to David in Hebron. Now, as we learned last week, polygamy isn't strictly forbidden in the Old Testament, but it's certainly not upheld as the ideal. The ideal, of course, is one man, one woman uh, in marriage, and that would have been the vast majority of marriages in Israel at this time. David's many wives and concubines, as well as the children born to them, some of the names you can see here, uh, if you know the story, if you know what happens later, they provide all kinds of hassle and trouble and difficulty for the house of David. But from a strictly empire-building angle, the increase of David's descendants is certainly a way that his house is being strengthened. And when you consider that Hebron was actually the first bit of the promised land that Abraham had a claim to, when you see a little genealogy like this with David, you're right to wonder, is it the case that the, the descendant of Abraham, the one who will bring the blessing of, of Abraham to all the nations, is that person now going to be a son of David? And of course, we know the answer eventually is yes, but we're right at this point uh, to be thinking that. But the other way that David's kingdom prevail over the kingdom of Saul was that Saul's great military commander... Abner saw the reality. Abner saw the reality that David really was God's chosen ruler. He took a bit of time to come around, but he worked out sooner or later that Abner, uh, that David is God's chosen ruler. And so what did Abner do? Well, he transferred from the house of Saul to the kingdom of David. Now, the story is recorded for us here, and it starts with presenting Abner as a rather self-interested and power-hungry individual. So, verse 6, during the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. See, the house of Saul is getting weaker and weaker, but Abner, Abner he's, he's getting stronger and stronger. He's, he's building up his own profile, so to speak. And like many influential leaders, Abner was keen to continue gaining power, probably for his own advantage. And so he did something that in this time and place, in this context, could have been perceived as a claim to the throne, or at least as a claim to be the second most powerful ruler over Israel. What was the thing he did? Well, he slept with one of the late King Saul's concubines. Verse 7, 
Now Saul had had a concubine named Ritzpah, daughter of Aiah, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Now I know when you first read it, you think, well, the, the charge is given, but we're not actually told if he did it or not. Um, however, if you read ahead, you'll also hear eventually of Absalom, later when he wants to take the throne from David, to show his superiority does the exact same thing. So I think the idea is that he actually has done this because he's self-interested, wants to gain more power, and this is a really good way of doing it, sleeping with the king's concubine. And when Ishbosheth questions Abner, he's not so much questioning Abner's morality, but his authority. Abner does not deny the charge, which again lends testimony to the fact that he actually did it, but he certainly does not like his status being questioned. And frankly, he explodes with an almost narcissistic rage. But his outburst also happens in such a way that makes us think, rightly, that he's now also using the incident as a convenient excuse to move up in the ranks by transferring to David's side. So verse 8, here's the explosion. Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, am I a dog's head? Remember, a head is a ruler, but if they're Judahites, they're dogs. Am I a, a Judah ruler? <laughs> well, actually, he's about to become one. Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I'm loyal to the house of your father Saul and his family and friends. I haven't handed you, Ishbosheth, over to David. Whoa, what a threat. Yet now you accuse me of an offence involving this woman, P.S. I don't deny it, may God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth, reasonably so, did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. I bet he was. Notice Abner's sense of self-importance and power. He speaks that if at any time he could have handed Ishbosheth over to David, which is probably true, by the way, like he actually does have that sort of power. But he also even speaks as if he will somehow be the vital player in God's plan to bring the kingdom to David, which of course he's completely wrong about. God could bring the kingdom to David no matter what. Ishbosheth is right to fear Abner because he genuinely is at the top of the power pyramid, but he wants more. And he sees the reality that David really will be the ruler over Israel. Hence, we rightly get the sense that his anger also provided the convenient excuse for him to jump ship. Now, despite his obvious pride and sense of importance and power hungriness, Abner still sees reality for what it is. As a matter of fact, he sees reality because it aligns with his power hunger, well, he's making his power hunger align with what he knows to be reality. And he knows that you cannot successfully oppose God's chosen king. What you can do, of course, is join him. And it's as he seeks to join David that he starts to learn that David is genuinely in charge. He's a real king. He's not a puppet king like Ishbosheth. 
Abner might have thought that he would still be the biggest player, that he's still the biggest fish in the pond, but in his dealings with David, he starts to learn that David has actual authority. God's chosen king speaks with real authority. Here's how it plays out. From verse 12, uh, then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. So basically, David, get me on your side and I'll make your kingship legit, just like I did with Ishbosheth. But look now how when David responds, he actually calls all the shots. Verse 13, good, said David, I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. And the demand he makes is a legitimate demand because he literally has paid for this particular demand. Do not come into my presence, he says, do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. But even more than that, David didn't even wait for Abner to deliver on this demand. Verse 14, then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. It's a profoundly romantic gesture, isn't it, ladies, when a guy wants you and he decides that a hundred Philistine foreskins. You know, actually, it was 200. He really, like, that's got to make you feel good, right? 200 foreskins rather than 100. Anyway. So, Ishbosheth, who's very weakened at this point, knows he can't do anything but, but agree. Ishbosheth, verse 15, gave orders and had her taken away from her husband Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go back home. So he went back. Now I know we get distracted when we come to this part of the story. Because how could you not want to know more about this? terrible rending of the relationship like what poor guy do you feel sorry for Paltiel like you just lost it you might not be right to feel sorry for him by the way all Israel would have known that David had actually overcome Saul's plan of killing him by saying you can have this woman if you get a hundred foreskins thinking that a hundred Philistines would kill David but David went out and he killed 200 of them and so Saul had egg on his face and he had to give Michal to David in marriage. Israel probably wouldn't have known about this. And then when Saul was hunting David to take his life, David had to flee and Saul had a hissy fit and said, right then, well, I'm the king, you girl, go and hang out with my friend Paltiel and marry him. She probably didn't want it, I suspect she was unwilling, she actually loved David, Right? Regardless of what the circumstances were, the, the one obvious thing that we can all agree on is you can't mess with marriage and think that it's going to be all right. That is, is never the case. And the fact that she's being called back to the kingdom of God's true king does involve relational disharmony. And by the way, that's the same for us who are in Christ. As a matter of fact, I know of people for whom their coming to Christ has meant that their spouse will abandon them. That's, that's something that sort of you see throughout the New Testament. But in any event, 
we must not get distracted by that great interest that we all have because, you see, the thrust here is about how David calls the shots. He's the authority. He won't be a puppet king. He truly is the Lord's anointed and he speaks with the authority that God gives to his anointed. The real question here is, will Abner learn to serve David Not because he sees it as advantageous to himself, but simply because he learns that David is God's chosen Messiah. Now, I actually like to think that Abner learns. I like to think that Abner becomes repentant, especially because as he goes about his newfound job of of getting the kingdom transferred, Abner gets confronted not just by the authority of God's chosen king, but also by the grace and the goodness of God's anointed. Verse 17, Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, for some time you have wanted to make David your king. P.S. I want that too, but for some time you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it, for the Lord promised David by my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to the Benjamites in person. Now, that would have been important because, you remember, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So, if he could especially get them on side, then he'd have a much better chance of having all Israel on side. And basically, they are pretty much on side anyway. Halfway through verse 19, then he went to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole tribe of Benjamin wanted to do. So, Abner went around doing his whole kingmaker gig... But then he went to report to David in person where things were up to. Now, having been in the house of Saul and having seen that David is no pushover, Abner doesn't know whether or not he should be worried about coming into the presence of King David. And if you happen to remember from last week, Abner, even though he was reluctant, was the one that had killed Asahel, you know that whole spear coming out the back, horrible thing that you saw that last week, right? And Asahel would have been important to David. He he was the brother of Joab, David's military commander. So Abner has really been an enemy of the house of David and now he's coming to meet him in person. Even though they got this agreement going on, remember Abner's whole life would have been about political positioning where envy and rivalry and backstabbing are pretty normal. And so he's a little bit worried. As a matter of fact, He is literally guarded very heavily when he comes to see David. Verse 20, when Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, i.e. even with the agreement in place, he was tentative about meeting David face to face, he made sure he was guarded. But the Lord's anointed, who has the real authority, also displays the grace of God. Continuing verse 20, David prepared a feast for him and his men. There's an open arms welcome. There's an open arms welcome for even those who are once his enemies, who are fearful in approaching him. There's an open welcome for all who acknowledge the true lordship of God's anointed. The heart of David, like the heart of God, is to show mercy, is to show grace, is to give reconciliation, is to welcome people 
into his kingdom, which of course is one of the many reasons he foreshadows the person and work of the Messiah, namely Jesus Christ. Now verse 21, Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my Lord the King, so that they may make a covenant with you and that you may rule over all that your heart, which I've just seen is good, desires. So, David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Now, that little phrase here is going to occur two more times in the second half of the chapter, which we're going to see next week. He went in peace. It's important. I think it means he went in the favour of the Lord's anointed. I can't help but think of, you know, the famous parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the one who knew the grace of God is the one who went away justified, who went away in peace. And to add to that idea, this is actually the first time that David gets referred to as both Lord and King. And it's by someone who up to this point at least is full of pride and self-importance, who yet recognised the truth of God's Word and has now, I think, transferred into the Kingdom of the Lord's anointed. I suspect that these last words of our passage, uh, that with these words we're to see a hint of change in Abner. As a matter of fact, I know we are because, spoiler alert, in the next half of the chapter when he dies, David will ask the question, should Abner have died as the lawless die? And it's a rhetorical question that expects a negative answer. No, he was no longer a lawless one. Maybe Abner is subduing his pride in order to serve God's king. And we hope that from here on in, he will continue to serve his pride, even though, spoiler alert, he doesn't have very long to do it. That would make sense, though, because subduing pride and continuing to subdue pride are actually necessary tasks for those who know the reality that God's Messiah, God's Christ, is Lord. And it's because they're confronted with both the amazing authority but the even more amazing grace and forgiveness of God's true anointed that they want to give up their pride. That's the same as it is for us who know the ultimate Messiah, namely Jesus. Now, I always make a point of doing this when I, well not always, but often make a point of doing this when I preach. I don't know everyone here, I don't know everyone's hearts, it might be the case that you could be someone who yet uh, does not identify as a Christian. You, you maybe have not seen the reality that God's ultimate Messiah, the great son of David, namely Jesus, is in fact the one that God has put in charge over all people and all things, including you. And his kingdom will inevitably, inevitably be established on earth as it is in heaven. So the question I ask you, and more importantly, frankly, the question God asks you is, will you see reality? God made it really, really easy to recognise who the true ruler is. You know how he did it? By raising him from the dead. Will you see the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord and be on the right side of history by being on the right side of Jesus? If even a self-interested, 
power-hungry, political sort of chain-grabber like Abner, if he can see who God has chosen to be his ruler and then act in accordance, well, so can you. And if you do see the reality that Jesus is Lord, will you confront the pride that prevents you transferring into his kingdom? Or if you are a follower of Jesus, will you recognise that pride, far more often than not, is the reason that people will not transfer into God's kingdom? You see, it's common for people to think the reason they remain outside of Christ is because they're not convinced of the truth of the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, you're a sinner, you deserve God's judgment. Jesus kindly took that judgment on your behalf when he suffered and died on the cross as a substitute. That God raised him up to show that he definitely is Lord and that he is soon to come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. But far more often than not, the reason someone won't transfer into the kingdom of Jesus has nothing to do with lack of understanding the gospel. Far more often than not, the real reason people won't come into Jesus' kingdom is because of their pride. Like Abner, they would rage at the idea that their self-achieved status means nothing and actually needs to be given up in order that they come to know the one who truly is in charge. Uh, If you've been around here for a while and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, it is almost certainly because you have pride getting in the way. It's not that you haven't heard enough, it's because you're not yet willing to let go of self-importance, of self-rule. But you see, out of his tremendous love and grace, Jesus calls you to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow him. And for those that do, they're the ones who, like Abner, go in peace. They're the ones that God is graciously transferring into his kingdom, which is a kingdom of peace. In case you don't know this, by the way, the kingdom you transfer out of is not the house of Saul, it's actually the house of Satan. That's what happens if you become a follower of Jesus. You don't transfer out of the kingdom of neutrality and then become a follower of Jesus. You transfer out of the, literally, the domain of darkness. Here's how the Bible puts it in uh, Colossians. He's talking to Christians and he says, "'He has delivered us from the domain of darkness.'" and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But for those of us who have seen reality, and for those of us who have taken up our cross to follow Jesus, it's imperative we ask ourselves the question, how will I continue to confront my pride? How will I go the way that ultimately Abner ought to have gone, if not for his untimely death? Well, This is a hard one because it's sort of unique to every individual. We all have areas where we think the Lordship of Jesus is here, but I'm more comfortable my way, my thought, my attitude. And I've constantly kind of got to work at decreasing that and increasing Him. But I'll give you something general. Uh, I've probably said this before, I don't know if I've said it here or not. Something that I love from the whole realm of psychology and psychoanalysis is what the Joe the Joe Hari quadrant, right? What's the Joe Hari quadrant, man? I'm glad you asked. Four areas. Just imagine four things, right? 
that sort of um, reflects the way we socialise with other people. Window one, there is stuff I know about me and everybody else knows about me. I like guitars, I know that, you know that. Okay, that's box one. Box two, there's stuff I know about me but nobody else knows about me. Uh, the example I use, which will therefore, by definition, take it out of the box because you'll all know, is, uh, you know how in Harrington Park there's all beautiful lawns and people spend a lot of time? There's a lawn that if you drive out of my house and you just go around the corner to the right, it's immaculate and it's got a sign that says, please keep off the lawn because they spend forever doing it, right? And um, I, this, this is my confession, as I drive around there, I realise it would be so easy to do just a little doughy and just burn in the back of that lawn and then sort of like keep going as I go, right? Now, you'll be pleased to know I never act on this sinful desire of mine, but now that I've revealed it to you, before I revealed it, that was something I knew about me but you didn't know, right? That's that box. Next box to the Johari window is there stuff I don't know about me and you don't know about me. There's a certain number of hairs on my head. It's a declining number, but I don't know the number, and neither do you. So we're both in the dark, who cares? God knows. Actually, he literally knows the number of hairs on my head. But it's the last box that's the terrifying one, and everyone's freaked out with this one. You ready? There are things about me that I do not know, but everybody else does. And I've got news for you. Everyone has that box. There are things about you that you don't know, but everybody else does. Now, why am I talking about psychology all of a sudden? Well, because that's where pride really likes to take root. You see, my idea that I'm kind of all right by myself and that I'm, you know, not needing of, uh, to, to humble myself, that I've got this area in my life that I keep sort of justifies all right is often one that I can't see, but other people can. That's why God really, really insists that followers of Jesus fellowship, that we sit under the Word together. That's why Christians who are avoiding church or avoiding growth group are actually spiritually immature, because I actually need other people to confront me, particularly when it comes to my pride that will manifest itself in all sorts of ways. You've got to get to the point where you can say to a trusted, trusted Christian friend, look, is there something wacky that I'm doing? Is there something out of line that I've done, said or thought? And it's really hard, especially for older men, which I'm not there yet, well, maybe, I don't know, I'm on my way to being an older man, especially if you've worked in an institution where a lot of your job is telling other people what to do. And you get to the point where you realise there's actually no one game to ever confront you about anything. That's an evil place to be. You've actually got to... I'm not going to tell someone who's 20 years older than me, I'm not going to tell them if I think pride has manifested itself in a certain way, that there's something, that there's a big glaring sinful tendency. I'm not going to do that. That would have to be invited. You see how that works? It's actually an important discipline of Christians to recognise the authority and lordship of Jesus and His grace by constantly subduing the pride. And that actually requires other people. It requires relationship, it requires trust, it requires fellowship. Now, what does it look like in your life? i got no idea. What does it look like in mine? I literally have no idea. You've got to come and tell me afterwards. Don't all come at once because I'll be too depressed, but you know, you get the idea. 
But God knows, and it's to him we now turn in prayer to ask that he would help us to continue to subdue our pride. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for the true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great Son of David, who speaks with all the authority of God and who yet gives amazing grace to those who are transferred into his kingdom. Heavenly Father, may we continue to subdue our pride. May you show us, through the gift of one another, areas in our lives where we are not honouring the Lordship of Jesus, where we are seeking self-advantage, however that might manifest itself. Father, I pray for those here, if uh, there's anyone here who has yet uh, has not transferred out of the domain of darkness, that in your amazing grace and love you would take hold of them, give them repentance and faith, that they would find the forgiveness of sins in the kingdom of Jesus, who will inevitably come to reign on earth as he currently does in heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.